I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, and welcome to Earthfire Radio. Earthfire Institute is a wildlife sanctuary and rehabilitation center whose mission is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. When I first saw Anne's paintings, I couldn't believe it. The quality of the craftsmanship and the incredible soul and emotion of the animal coming through its truly female perspective of wildlife. She's a world-renowned wildlife artist and conservationist. After visiting a refuge in California for big cats, elephants, and other endangered species that were retired from being used in the media, she began melding her artwork with her love for animals. She began creating dramatic pieces that provide emotive portraits of wild animals, especially endangered species. In the decades since, she has developed a remarkable career as an internationally recognized artist and a champion of animal conservation. Through her frequent visits to wild locations, Anne witnesses animals firsthand and records the face of nature through her Portraits of the Wild series. She draws only what she sees and viscerally feels from the animal's perspectives while immersing herself in the natural surroundings. Now in her fourth decade as a fine artist, Anne has expertly used her work to raise money and awareness for endangered animals. She's active in several animal conservation organizations and serves on the board of directors for Project Hope Foundation and is a partner of Earthfire. She's a personal friend of mine and I'm just delighted to speak with her today. It's an honor to be on the earth with someone that profoundly talented and connected with wildlife. Welcome, Anne. I think art and conservation is just a really important topic. You are deeply involved in it. From your point of view, how would you explain the importance of art in conservation, or your particular art, which is gorgeous, in conservation? First of all, my choice in subject matter uh, is definitely one that opens doors easier than, let's say, something else. I mean, I, I think people are, on a very deep level, attracted to animal imagery, you know, and I could go so far as to say maybe it's deeply imprinted on our psyche. You know, you could look at the very first art on caves and say, well, there's a tradition you know, that goes pretty far back, all the way back to the times of fire-making. But um, aside from that, I think that uh, when you present a creative effort to another creative mind, you know, like somebody who's looking at a piece of artwork or reading a book or listening to music, when you present a creative effort, you unlock, you know, a whole other um, way of thinking, an abstract form of thinking that is not the People do memorize by rote history and mathematics and things like that. That's not to say they can't be creative with them, but uh, memorization is so important for some subjects, and it's 
not as important for creative subjects, such as visual arts, which is something that I work in. So I think that when you, you present to another human being uh, the efforts of that part of the human psyche, I think they respond in a way that's just intrinsically different. And that way would be, uh, let's say, a creative thought process. It takes creativity to enjoy creativity, in my opinion. I don't think you can have somebody enjoy a beautiful sonata who doesn't appreciate the abstract leap from note to note. And the same thing with artwork that's visual. I think somebody who's looking at any kind of artwork, really, can be an abstract for that matter. The, the, the leap from one tone or color to another or one shade to another or lack of, those are all felt decisions, not so much thought decisions. And so let me get back to the conservation component of that. I think that in many ways creative solutions come from the same fertile ground that is our imagination. So a creative solution to the problems that conservation experiences today, we're talking poaching and environmental uh, disasters and pollution, things like that. I think that, you know, you can, you can memorize all of the salient facts, but it takes creativity to rearrange them in a form that can go forward and not just remain static. And that's very much what artwork is. Artwork is rearranging the static information at hand and moving it into a future, the future of a piece that has never existed before. And so that optimism, if you want to call it optimism, hope, faith, whatever, uh, is certainly a, a, a flavor to anything creative. So, you know, no, no good solutions happen without hope. Uh, and in my opinion, no good artwork of any kind happens without hope. Same thing. How's that? It's really good. Quiet. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. Um, I like it a lot. Um, you used the word abstract. Um, in my mind, abstract goes to abstract thinking like physics, math, as opposed to something grounded in the earth. How are you using that word? Oh, well, when I say something abstract, when I use the word abstract, what I mean is that Let's say I have the numbers 4 and 1. And we know empirically that 4 and 1 makes uh, an addition of 5. But an abstract uh, approach to the numbers 4 and 1 could be uh, 1 over 4 or 41 divided by 14. Or it could be, you see, it's like taking the same empiric bit of data and just swinging it out into some kind of space where you look at it differently. For me, that's an abstract effort, you know, to take something that you've known empirically for a very long time and look at it as a completely different thing. You know, it's from a different corner of the room. Hmm. And this is a hard one, but it's profoundly interesting and important, which is how do you define creativity? Well, I'll just preface 
preface my definition by saying everyone has their own peculiar definition of that. So what I'm about to say will be mine. Um, I think that creativity is the thing that makes us viable as a species on the planet. I think creativity and why we honor it so much. I mean, we, you know, many religions talk about God the creator. You know, creativity is the beginning of everything. God created the world. I mean, some people, use, this word occurs in many uh, spiritual writings and, and thoughts. I think creativity is how this species, the one I belong to, takes the world and instead of just reacting to it, um, interprets it. You know, human beings don't have the speed or the claws or the strength that a lot of other species um, have developed. You know, we have this frontal cortex busyness that gives us a list of what's good and what's bad and and promotes uh, our thinking in certain directions because of it. It's like, so I think this cognition, you know, is certainly holding hands with the word creativity. And I think that uh, creativity for me would specifically speak to how do I take the tools of my trade and recreate an experience I've had with an animal and how does a viewer of that piece of work I've done use their imagination to forget for a moment that they're looking at a flat surface with pigment on it. You see that's where the imagination on the part of the viewer comes in. It's the suspension of just a reactive reality and the ability to focus beyond just the facts. You know, creativity is sort of a two-way street. When I go into an art museum, I'm not looking at flat paintings and drawings. I'm looking at windows into other universities. They happen to be rec rectangular shaped for the most part, just like a window. And maybe there's no, maybe there's no coincidence there. Maybe we react to rectangularly shaped pieces of artwork the same way we react to a window. We must look. You know, we are compelled to look through it. Um, I think it's a transcendence of just reacting to the world and dancing with the world. Maybe that's what creativity is. Nice. I like that. Um... You had said in that earlier conversation that you see art as the original language. Could you explain that a little? I, I think, you know, one of the very first faculties that almost any creature develops is their sight, and for good reason. So it stands to reason that our extended abilities, we'll call it, of language, mathematics, music, art, whatever, would originate on the land of 
drawing. I think drawing, you know, the abstract leap of thought that takes a line on a, on a cave wall from strictly being an accident of gravity to symbolic of a tree or a horizon line, I think the leap, the gap between the former and the latter is truly important. And I think it's not only responsible for, you know, every piece of art that's ever been made, for the polio vaccine, it's also responsible for a lot of the problems we create for ourselves, you know, in terms of oh, war and destruction of environment that we have to live in. I think, you know, it, that creativity can be a bad thing as well, you know, but language is, in terms of art, getting back to that, is like it is the, it is one of the first tools, is this ability to see beyond just the accidental mark on the wall to seeing something else. It's the very first thing. And uh, every, every culture has some version of this. You know, I, I suspect I've, that even some animal species have a version of this. I've seen dolphins blowing bubble rings. I've seen elephants making paintings. I've seen a lot of things that, you know, if you st talked about it just in an empiric way, would certainly be comparable to anything I do in my studio. So I, I think a visual representation that can be interpreted as something other than it is, um, that's a common language to all who have eyes. I just did a little article on listening and how there are many different kinds of listening or knowing and receiving. And I was thinking a little bit as if art, I'm talking about, at the moment I'm talking about visualizing, thinking about your paintings, uh, but the process of making it somehow involves the quality of listening. Does that make sense to you? Oh, definitely. I, I think I think any artist that walks into their studio walks in with um, a tool belt. The tool belt, and, and I'm speaking figuratively here, the tool belt is all of your experience up to that point of using materials and your knowledge of anatomy, if that's what you do, or, or your, your color sense. But the listening part of what I, excuse me, what I do, the listening part is looking at things that develop that you weren't counting on, things that develop on the surface. It could be how two colors run into each other. It could be a line that suddenly suggests another direction. You know, that is certainly a, a, at least half of what's happening in my studio is waiting for the happy accident, the, the phenomena um, to lead me um, deeper into a piece. They're like... Um, they're like clues. You didn't know they were going to exist. And then when you come upon one, you're like, oh, well, this certainly changes things. And you move along the, the course that the clue gave you. So, yeah, I think there's a certainly um, a similar thing going on in, in my studio, at least. And how is listening that for, uh, go ahead, so Go ahead. I'm sorry? Go ahead. I was just going to say listening for the visual clues, I guess you could call it. <laughs> and how do those clues <laughs> arrive? I'm sorry? How do those clues happen? You know, um, that's a good question that uh, I'm 
not even sure I can answer. I mean, you just look down on the surface you're working on, and you, you realize there's a line you made maybe 40 minutes ago that you've never really contemplated too closely, and all of a sudden, in the context of everything since that 40 minutes ago, it is something else now. And so it's a surprise. And, and often, to encourage the surprise factor, I will walk out of my studio and get myself busy with something mundane in the house, and then I'll walk into the studio very quickly and just surprise myself looking at the piece. And invariably, my eyes will fall on something within that piece that jumps out at me that didn't when I was standing two feet away from the surface. Does so it, that's another way things arrive. They surprise me. Does it feel as if that all of those surprises and clues are coherent in a way, and therefore they come from some kind of pattern that we don't consciously recognize but are tuned to? I, I do think there's probably some warp and weave in our subconscious thinking that attracts me to certain lines, tones, happenings. I, I think that's probably true. I mean, why wouldn't it happen? I mean, you know, if you... If you want to say that we all intrinsically know that fire is our friend at night and can also hurt us, we all seem to intrinsically know that. So it's like there are probably lots of things. You know, like uh, you can talk about how two dark points placed so far apart resemble two eyes and how even in our peripheral vision we're attracted to look at that. And then you, you could talk about how that pattern of the two is something of a remnant of being viewed at by another creature with the same binocular vision as all hunters that we also have. So it's like, you know, I, I do think there are patterns, you know, and vibrations and, and tone and color combinations that certainly we respond to on a visceral level. Yes. I know sometimes in my writing I feel like I'm listening to something. I've never been able to put my finger on it. You know, I, and I think that's encouraging that voice or sound is our challenge as artists is to, you know, you have to use your ego to walk into the studio and to learn everything you've learned up to a certain point, and then you have to set it aside and say, come what may, you know, and then allow it. Yeah. You know, I think that that is definitely uh, a challenge. It's a challenge every day when you walk in a studio and you can't make something happen that, that you like, and you think, oh, the voice has deserted me, when in <laughs> fact it's probably more that we weren't focused that day. You know, it's like, again, even that statement reeks of the ego dictating the words. <laughs> Why did you decide to do wildlife art? You know, I don't remember the decision. It was so early, uh, even as a small child. It was so early for me that it doesn't feel like a decision. It's like blue is the color of rhinos and elephants, and red is the color of lions and leopards. And, uh, you know, I when I think of certain kinds of lines and colors, my Crayola box has animal names on those colors. 
And could you talk a little bit about how you try to capture the soul of that, not just the animal species, but that particular animal? Or intelligence equalities. I have order. to say, the this question, and I hear it often. How did you get the animal's personality or soul into that painting? I would pose a different question. How can you leave it out? Because if you're looking at real models, and that is a key factor to what I do. If you're looking at real models, real living beings, you're not thinking the hip bone's connected to the leg bone. You're thinking, oh, the emotional state of that animal as it looks at me is really something. Everything else is just descriptive, like the carriage that holds that emotion. You know, I do spend a lot of time studying the carriage so that I can get it right, but the, the soul part, I'm more nonplussed when I see really great work, technically great work, that has left that out. It seems as though it's more work to leave it out. It's almost like mm -hmm. trying to create mm -hmm. a real animal from a taxidermied one. Huh. It's like you can you can get all the parts completely right, but you don't have a light behind the eyes. It's like you if you start uh, from something that's not alive only. Let's say you only work from photographs, right? And, and I know that. Even I, I will use a photograph as a backup here and there for a certain detail. But if you only work on photographs, then you're only getting the same kind of empirical information that a camera can deliver to you. When you're looking at another living being with an emotional presence, you have the ability with your brain to, and your two eyes, you know, and your whole being to record that other being's state. A camera's never going to be able to do that. There's some great, there's some great photography out there. Don't get me wrong, but there's just something uh, much more arresting uh, looking at a living being, especially as an artist. When you draw from life, that the feeling of that creature informs your line and shading in a way that just duplicating from a photograph cannot. And I think most artists would agree with that. I think that uh, it's hard. It's harder to work from a moving creature. You know, they don't pose for you, but the rewards are stupendous. So you almost like join with that creature if the being of the creature affects and causes the shape of the line you make. Absolutely, yes. So you're bonding with it yes. or connecting with it so this almost like there's a link between you and that animal and it goes from that link to your hand to the paper? I think that's a perfect way to put it. It's an empathetic uh, effort. When you see, I'm, I can remember being a child riding in the back of my parents' car and looking up at birds hanging onto telephone wires and thinking to myself, I can feel the wires in my hands. I can remember thinking that as a child. Huh. And that's the same feeling I get when I'm drawing a wolf who's looking at me, I feel, I can almost feel what I must look like through that wolf's eyes. Huh? I can feel the cold under my paws. I can feel the wind behind my ear. It's like, it's a, it's a very empathetic moment for me. 
That's wonderful, Anne. Wonderful description. That's why your work is so good. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, you too. Look at look at your writing. I don't put it in the same caliber somehow, but that's another discussion. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wagging my finger at you over the phone now. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to write some of this up. Now that we've talked a bit, are there things that have come to mind that you would still like to share before we end this part of the conversation? Well, it's hard to condense down to a statement on that. No, it doesn't have to be um, a statement at all. It can be as long as you like. I just don't want to have anything left well, out. I would say that when I'm describing my own work to another artist, I'll say I try for the empathetic view. And I think what they know me to mean there is that it's not objective as much as it's felt from the same side. So even the choice of composition, even the choice of poses for me are all those of being one of that species I'm drawing. I try to imagine I'm in the other place. And I've been doing that since I was riding in the back of my parents' car. I've always slipped into what feels like my subject's world. And everything I've done in my whole life to support drawing skills and experience is my attempt to find a way to convey that to other people because I think intrinsically people are empathetic and I think they learn to be um, protectively objective. You know, I think that uh, school, I think politics, I think a lot of societal contracts require that you only be objective and not empathetic. And so when I present something that's empathetic, I see somebody come up to my work and they get teary looking at it and they Mm -hmm. don't know why. That's one of the few times I can say, oh, see, it worked that time. Mm. You know, it really worked that time. And it it makes me very glad. It makes me glad on many levels. It means that I'm not, you know, um, barking up the wrong tree. It also means that there are people out there that uh, are looking for that experience as well. Yeah, so in that sense, great art, which I think yours is, um helps people connect with their empathy and helps support it against all the forces against it. Yes, I hope so. I'd like to be an agent of that. Just like when you listen to a truly passionate piece of music and you're transported. You know, I don't think anybody who comes out of that moment of uh, bliss listening to a great piece of music comes out a worse person after it's over. (laughs) I think they come out a better person. Yeah, even if temporarily. The thing about yeah, even if temporarily, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The thing about art is, um, like visual art is, like I have this painting you did of the lion. It's just sitting there because I enjoy it so much. I can look at it again and again and again. Um, so it keeps, it keeps like keeps bringing you back to. I wouldn't say the truth, really, because that's got too many other implications. It keeps bringing you back to the foundations of what life is or is about or what the beauty of life is. 
I think that I think creativity in any form really is about celebrating and pointing back to this amazing reality that we get to live, you know, during right now. You know, I, I think that uh, it's it's always bothered me when people talk about heaven as something else. I'm like, why? You know, why wouldn't we assume that maybe we're in that place right now? Yes. And even 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 blowing trash on the street can have a beautiful component to it. You know, if you look at it that way, so it's like the 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 experience of being a human, at least. I mean, I can't speak to the animals, but the experience of being a human, anyway, you know, is fantastic. So, uh, art is sort of like a prayer. We're talking about. In the prayer, we're talking about the things that we all see already, and we're celebrating them by presenting them in a slightly different manner. It's like rearranging the the, um, the silverware on your table before a great feast. You know, you you see a painting of a lion. You've never thought of a lion being painted that way before, but it seems even more lion-ish for the viewing. You yeah. know, and um, I you know I think a lot of art serves to remind us of the wonder of it all. Yeah. That's, that's definitely one of the things I keep trying to do in my life. It's just the wonder, the sheer wonder, the sheer wonder of life yeah, around us. Yeah, mind-blowing, isn't it? Mm. And, and along with that, the sheer beauty. And mm-hmm. it's just, a, just a astounding. Oh, yeah. I just saw, I just saw uh, on the, the shores of the... the Mara River in Tanzania, I saw countless bodies of wildebeest who had not, who had failed to make the crossing along with their thousands of colleagues, you know, herd mates, whatever. And those, even the bodies, uh, and they were feeding, you know, many birds, and they were feeding crocodiles, and they were feeding jackals downriver. It's like, even in death, you can see the amazing beauty of it. You know, there is a beauty of it. The sheer uh, vibrancy, somehow, even in death, yes, so the energy is being exchanged, and that's an intellectual way of saying it. But you can feel one transforming into the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not leaving the system. It's just transforming. Yeah. Maybe that's a little bit of art. Maybe art is transforming what we already know. And so it's like a little rebirth every time you see something or hear something that you've not heard before. This is Dr. Susan Eyrick for Earthfire Radio, a production of Earthfire Institute. If you would like to help with our mission to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature, please make a donation at our website, www.earthfireinstitute.org. The soundscapes are by Wild Sanctuary Presents, Bernie Krauss and Philip Auberg. Thank you for listening. <laughs>